Brynmar Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome to New Retina Radio. Uh, I'm Paul Chan uh, from the Illinois Eye and Ear Infirmary at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm here with Dr. Alan Ho from Minnesota Retina Wills Eye Hospital in Philadelphia. Um, and we are coming to you live from Asia uh, with our friends from Asia, uh, giving you some perspective in this continuing series of uh, COVID-19 coverage. Uh, so today we have Professor Shunji Kusaka from Japan. He's the chair of uh, the Department of Ophthalmology at Kindai University, Faculty of Medicine in Osaka, Japan. Uh, Dr. Manish Nagpal from India uh, at the Retina Foundation, Ahmedabad, Gujarat, India. And also Professor Wei Chi Wu from Taiwan, uh, who's the chair of ophthalmology at Chenggong Memorial Hospital in Taiwan. Uh, so we have three different perspectives continuing from our previous uh, podcast and webinar. Uh, we're going to start with uh, Professor Wu uh, to give some perspective on uh, the situation in Taiwan. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Wei Chi Wu. I'm working for Chang'e Memorial Hospital in Taiwan. And um, it's my honor to be here to share with you our uh, experience of uh, of handling COVID-19. This is the current condition of COVID-19 in Taiwan. So far, we have 429 cases, and most of the cases were imported cases. We uh, have very few uh, local acquired cases, and so far, we have only six uh, uh, deaths, and uh, we have uh, 324 patients released from isolation already. And uh, this is a graph showing the, um, the number of confirmed cases uh, 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 by the time. And you can see that the majority of the cases occur in the uh, middle of uh, uh, March. And uh, uh, this is a, a landmark hotel in Taipei, Grand Hotel. And uh, it, show that uh, uh, we have six consecutive uh, day of zero new cases uh, in this country. Uh, this is a, a sign that could uh, uh, boost the morale of the people in the city. So um, anyway, there is no tourists right now in the, in the hotel. So, so it shows a zero, zero sign on the, on, in the front of the hotel. So that's the, um, that's the current situation uh, in Taiwan. And uh, uh, what happened in the past uh, three weeks in, in here, I think we have uh, launched a face mask uh, 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 purchase uh, uh, online program. Or you can, you can get the face mask uh, at a convenience store, but you need to use your national insurance card so it's, it's go with your ID. So no one could uh, stock the uh, face mask. And uh, uh, if you feel your face mask is enough, you can donate your face mask to the people uh, uh, 
uh, around the world. And uh, uh, there's also app recently launched to show the level of congestion in each city spot. So you can, so people could avoid going to those overcrowded area. So these are the, um, this is a, a kiosk uh, uh, at a convenience store. You can insert your national insurance card uh, to get your uh, face mask. And uh, you could also use an app to get your face mask or if you have enough of them, you can donate the face mask to the people uh, in the rest of the world. And this is an app showing the, um, you can, you can run into the uh, city spa you want to go, especially right now is a national holiday in Taiwan. Um, so if you want to go to a specific uh, city spa, you can use this app to see how congested it is. And if you feel this is, there are too many people over there, you can avoid, you can choose alternative uh, uh, places to go. Why don't we uh, go on to Dr. Kusaka and then we'll have Dr. Nagpal, and then we'll open it up for discussion. Shunji? Yes, hi. I'm Shunji Kusaka from Osaka, Japan. Yeah, I just want to share with you, uh, I prepared a couple of slides uh, showing the current status of uh, COVID-19 in Asian countries and in Japan as well. And you can see in this slide that Japan has already had patient over nearly 14,000 patients and over 400 deaths, unfortunately. And as Weiqi mentioned, Taiwan, uh, they have only 400, uh, 429 cases and uh, very few uh, deaths, number of deaths. And uh, Korea, South Korea also has a lot of patients initially, but they also uh, succeeded in regulating, uh, reducing the number of new patients. Uh, so <clears throat> I heard the news that uh, a, a few days ago, the, there was no new patient in South Korea. Uh, so they are uh, like back in business, uh, they started and other countries, as you can see here, the Singapore has recently increased dramatically the number of cases. And uh, Indonesia, they also have an, uh, over 10,000 patients. But uh, as you can see in the US, uh, you have over 1 million, uh, 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 1 million uh, confirmed cases. And the uh, if you divide it, the number by the uh, population, uh, the, the situation in the US is much more severe than uh, situation in the most Asian countries, unfortunately. The, this shows the uh, cumulative number of confirmed cases in Japan, and also the light panel showed the daily new patient. Uh, 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 fortunately, the daily new patient has been decreasing little by little after uh, uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe declared a state of emergency on uh, April 7th. And just a couple of uh, hours ago, I heard the news that uh, the Prime Minister is going to postpone 
the end of the uh, state of emergency until the end of uh, May. So people are very disappointed uh, with the news because we are under strong frustration. Uh, we, uh, we cannot go out for shopping, uh, go out for dining, and some major companies are closed uh, for nearly one month. So the economy here has been severely uh, damaged. So there is a discussion whether when to uh, restart or reboot the uh, economy. Yeah, that's the uh, yeah, overall uh, situation in Japan. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Kusaka. Mm -hmm. uh, Manish, any comments? Hello. Yeah, hello everyone. Uh, thank you, Paul and Alan, for involving me and um, talking to you about the condition in uh, India over this whole pandemic. So we had our first few cases in uh, middle of April. And before that, I think we were all living under this impression that we are probably uh, immune or protected or, or maybe we'll get by uh, in some way or the other. And then I think around 23rd or 24th of April, uh, we were in a, told to be in a lockdown for three weeks uh, till April 14th. And since then, uh, everything's been under a lockdown except for essential services, which are moving and as we closed down to April 14th, uh, uh, they increased the lockdown to 3rd of May, which is uh, starting of uh, Monday next week. Uh, but as we are getting closer to that time period, uh, we are not sure if there's going to be a full opening or some sort of a, a relaxation based on a certain type of zones that they've created. So as far as the numbers go, we have about 35,000 cases uh, uh, in India so far. And the death is about in about 1,200 people uh, at the moment. And so the rate percentage is about 3.1%, uh, which is less than what we've seen in Italy or US. Uh, so on, from that basis, as far as the number of cases go, the fatality is less, uh, but the numbers are gradually increasing. We've still not uh, reached a peak uh, so far. And, and we every day see a lot of cases increasing in various sectors. So what the government has done is they've divided the country, uh, every place into three zones, uh, red, orange, and green. But the red and orange based on the most active areas, which are totally quarantined with least amount of movement and uh, essential services are uh, food. Everything is, is, is sent to the homes of people uh, as far as possible without any movement. And then orange is a midway where uh, they, they relax to some extent. And then there's green where there are uh, no cases. So uh, so what they're going to do from Monday is that most likely they will allow uh, some sort of uh, good relaxation in the green areas while uh, minimal in the orange and then no uh, in the red for another few weeks, uh, probably by till end of May. So that's the status uh, as of now for India. Mm. Those are all very interesting uh, comments from all of you. So hello, and I'm Alan Ho. And uh, we have, um, as Manish describes, uh, different levels of activity in different areas. For example, uh, in the United States, I suspect in Taiwan or Japan, India, China, uh, different population densities, different areas, different zones as as Manish described, red, orange, uh, green zones. Here in the United States, one of the questions is, is becoming, uh, how do we reopen the country? 
in some areas that are not affected for medical care, uh, but also for, of course, the businesses that are being shut down. In <clears throat> Taiwan, for example, you, you described a very interesting geo map of where the government can track where you are so that people can see where the density of the population is with respect to a scenic or recreational area. We don't really have that in the United States. In Taiwan, how is the reopening going since your caseload and death rates are so low? And how would you, I'll ask the others to comment a little bit too. Uh, Alan, thank you for your question. I think we are extremely lucky because in Taiwan, we have uh, uh, responded to the COVID-19 fairly early, uh, starting last uh, December, uh, when we, there's an indication, uh, there is some infection in the Wuhan uh, province in China. Uh, we have monitored the passenger from Wuhan uh, 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 already. And then later in January, we uh, established the uh, command center for the central uh, disease uh, command uh, center. We, we start to uh, propose the quarantine procedure uh, for the high-risk people. And uh, so that's the reason why you can see the, from the figure that uh, there's, a, there's a time to pick, then there's a time to the, to the slope. Then um, it's about three months, three to four months. And uh, if you respond earlier and uh, you could uh, contain the uh, infection rate, uh, our, uh, you could, keep, you could uh, flatten the curve and uh, I think it's important that uh, you, you could uh, uh, reduce the number of in infected uh, patients because if you have too many patients at a time, that could uh, cripple your medical system. And so because we have responded to this uh, fairly early, so we are extremely lucky. The economy in this country are less affected. Uh, the people, most of the people still could work. And they, 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 the daily the eco economic activity was not affected. But of course, the, the uh, tourist, tourist industry are uh, suffering from the, this impact uh, 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 phenomenally. Also the restaurant and the service area, but other area basically are not uh, affected. So, um, in, in the hospital, we too, we don't, we see fewer patients uh, coming to the hospital because of the fear of contracting this disease. But basically, we, there are not much changes in terms of our practice. So, um, so for example, um, um, the, you, you, most of the doctor, most of the staff in our department, they still do what they could do in the past, they just see fewer patients and they postpone the non-essential, non-urgent uh, surgical cases. But uh, for the rest of, the, of their uh, uh, routine practice, it's mostly unaffected. Okay, but, but in areas that, where there are no little or few infections, let's say outside of the cities, are those areas already doing cataract surgery, for example. In other words, reopening 
maybe is not a one size fits every area. Uh, that's kind of what I'm, I'm getting at. So are some areas already reopened and I other think, areas? Yeah, okay. interesting. I you think cataract so. surgery uh, was performed already. Yeah. Yeah. And, How about uh, Dr. Kusaka? How about in Japan? Yeah. Um, we are, as I mentioned, we are uh, under some regulation, but um, we don't have a law uh, in Japan to uh, force people uh, not to go outside. What, uh, as you can see in the Western countries, you have a lockdown, right? Uh, but uh, we, we don't have a lockdown system. So only the government can do is to ask people to stay home. Um, but there is no penalty uh, if people go outside or do whatever they want to do. So uh, we, we are uh, under like a mild lockdown, uh, but people generally, um, generally speaking, Japanese people are, um, uh, tend to obey what authorities say. So uh, that, that system works so far, but they, as, a, um, as I mentioned, Shinzo Abe, uh, prime minister declared a state of uh, emergency on April 7th. It was supposed to end uh, by the May 6th, uh, one week from now, but uh, government will decide, will probably decide uh, to postpone the end by the uh, end of May, but without compensation to the stores or bars or uh, any kind of business, it's difficult for them to continue uh, their business. So people, um, if you watch Japanese TV, TV every TV station uh, broadcast a discussion whether when to uh, go back to normal life or when we should do that or just, uh, government should compensate uh, the uh, loss of, ex uh, especially the land fee. Uh, they need to uh, pay land fees and uh, salary for their employee anyway, uh, even without any, uh, without business. So uh, we, we don't have an answer at this point. And as Aaron mentioned that uh, the situation is worst in Tokyo and mm -hmm. second worst place is Osaka, but in some rural area, there is some area prefecture uh, like Iwate, there is no patient there and the school is still going on there. But in Tokyo or Osaka, schools are closed. And we don't know when to start the schools. We so, also know from the uh, <clears throat> Hokkaido Island experience about shutting down, reopening, and, and the second wave coming in Hokkaido. Maybe um, yes. you know, yes. these are some of the interesting issues that all, the, all our countries are facing. So not just on an ophthalmology or retina scale, but obviously in a larger scale. So maybe we'll drill down to some ophthalmology questions. What do you think, Dr. Chan? Yeah, I think, that, I, think I agree. Um, so we have some audience questions here uh, that we want to address. So let's maybe shift to uh, one question from the audience about just how this, this whole thing has changed your practice, right? So your retina practice, how you manage patients, um, are you providing laser or anti-VEGF, what do you do for your surgical cases, 
you know, one of the things that came up uh, recently was, you know, your protocols for macular degeneration or diabetic eye disease. Are you using different agents to uh, extend treatment so that you're not having patients come back more frequently? Uh, why don't, Manish, why don't you comment on that first um, and then we can go around and then address some of the other questions from the audience. <clears throat> yeah, so I think, as I said, we were totally locked down from 23rd April. And since for the first week, I think we just uh, didn't know how to go about and um, everything was shut uh, uh, as far as the practice goes. Uh, even today, most of our normal practice is shut. We are only looking at uh, some emergency cases uh, like detachments or trauma uh, and as you mentioned, injections, uh, patients who've already been on injections, some of them who can, who are local and can reach us uh, uh, would call us and then we would call them and give the injections. Uh, but uh, a lot of them are coming from different states, regions, which uh, uh, India is a huge country with a lot of states, with a lot of uh, borders. And uh, various states are not allowed to have people passing through these borders to come in at the moment. So a lot of patients can't move because of that reason alone, unless there's an emergency and then we have to write to uh, give them a letter saying that uh, it's an emergency situation and they take special permissions to come. Uh, so it's a huge problem. Uh, this Everything happens on the phone right now. Uh, we, we just try to consider what's an emergency, what's not based on what the patient's telling us or if he's had a local examination and then we call them. So till now, we've just done a few emergency detachments, trauma, uh, and injections. We've not, uh, I don't think we've looked at this concept of extended injections or something because we've not given that many so far. Uh, but, but I think it's a valid question that if we are looking at a long lockdown or, or a long-term situation, we may have to consider, say, giving an Ozodex instead of uh, anti-vegetative for a diabetic edema uh, uh, just so that the patient can have a relief much longer. Yeah, here's, here's a good question, actually. Um, you know, what, so maybe this is for uh, Wei Chi first, but what guidelines are you recommending for opening up ophthalmology clinics? I, and I think to, to Alan's point earlier, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of variability in the United States in different cities, right? So New York is, is obviously dealing with different things from Philadelphia and Chicago. And, and I think potentially our pace of opening up things and increasing our patient access is going to be staggered based on where you are. But, you know, guidelines, recommendations, your experiences, you know, what are you, what recommendations do you have to open up uh, increased volume surgically and, and also in our outpatient clinics? Um, I think in, in Taiwan, um, actually, in uh, March, we have seen a lot of uh, a lot uh, fewer patients uh, in our service. But uh, I think near the end of March, we start to see more and more patients. And this month, in 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 no in in April, the patients start to go back. And uh, I I think it's a integrated uh, a network that could make this system uh, work. I think the whole country has to adopt good policy to reduce the overall number of patients. Mm -hmm. Then your hospital also has to adopt very good, uh, let's say access control, gate control, uh, health monitoring system to make sure the patient came in uh, 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 without additional uh, risk and then when the patient came to 
ophthalmology department, uh, we have additional uh, final, uh, final uh, lines of defense. We can have additional uh, verification. They are okay patient. Then if you have these, uh, these uh, uh, defense system, then probably uh, the risk could be minimized. But uh, uh, so, so in Taiwan, I think so far, we, the, the overall uh, medical as well as surgical cases are slightly decreased, but not as many as you, you experience in US. We probably were down about 30% only. And uh, um, so, so uh, we are pretty lucky at this point. I think most of the cases for injection or surgery uh, will go on, uh, continue as, as, as in the past. And uh, um, the, all the meeting were shifted uh, to online meeting. So uh, right now we, uh, we, we held our uh, morning meeting uh, completely using this uh, format and everybody uh, like it. And uh, uh, I found out that uh, I even have uh, more chances to learn uh, the, uh, the new knowledge from the other department, from the other subspecialty like, uh, like uh, cornea or glaucoma uh, subspecialty. Because in the past, I rarely attend their meeting, but nowadays it's so convenient. I just need to use my computer. I could uh, lock on the, uh, their, their meeting. Okay. So research was not affected. I think research mm -hmm. was not a, a affected and uh, the, uh, the, the meeting um, were changed completely to online at this point. And uh, in clinical uh, uh, service, we are down about 20 to 30%, but we recover gradually. So is there any uh, clear criteria to, uh, to, to say that uh, it's okay, it's safe, you can open your service to the patient? I think it depends on the overall situation in the country and uh, also how many procedures you have to make sure uh, the patient came in uh, with clear indication they are not high-risk patient. If you, if you have a, a policy to make sure those happen, then uh, probably it's okay. You can continue your, with your uh, routine practice for your patients. We have uh, a couple questions that are from the audience as well. Dr. Hudson Nakamura in Brazil asks if he thinks that the second wave has already passed in countries such as Singapore and China. We don't have any panelists from Singapore and China, but maybe I'll just take that one and say uh, it's, it's really unclear. I, I think second wave can be coming, second and third waves can be coming because herd immunity and uh, a real vaccine has not been established yet. There's a, there's a, good, there's a good question and it reminds us, uh, this is from Dr. Mahabeen Chowdhury from, uh, uh, from Bangladesh, he, he's saying that they're just starting to see things in, in Bangladesh with respect to COVID. Is, is it necessary to maintain six feet distance? And what, what are the protective equipments uh, that you wear in your clinic when you're taking care of, let's say, injection patients? And then we'll talk about the OR as well. 
Uh, maybe Dr. Dr. Uh, Nagpal. Yeah, so uh, in the, when we see these patients, uh, what we do is wear the regular N95 uh, masks and uh, gloves in the hand when we see them in the clinic uh, and keep a distance uh, and use only the indirect uh, from uh, in a sitting patient. I don't usually have them lie down and do a detailed examination. It's only a very gross uh, examination that we try to do with the indirect just to establish that uh, the patient has this diagnosis. And once we take the patient, uh, we in India always have been injecting in ORs. So it's never been an office procedure. And so it's pretty much in sync with any OR procedure. So not much changes except uh, the distancing and the patient is always also wearing a mask uh, all the time uh, from when he's entering the clinic. And we just make sure that all these things uh, are maintained and uh, hygiene and sanitization. Constantly, we keep putting sanitizer on the hands of the patients as well when he's moving in the hospital to the from the clinic to the OR to wherever or the relatives. So these, this is what we are doing for injections. How about you, Dr. Kusaka? Are you how are you seeing the patients with what protection? Yeah, uh, I didn't use mask before, face mask before, but I started using them because uh, our hospital uh, they, they set a rule that every doctor should have a face mask when they see a patient. And I also started using a, a eye seal to protect my eye from the patient breathe. And I, we also asked the patient to wear a uh, face mask for every patient. So if the patient don't have mask, because the mask, uh, it's very difficult to buy mask here in Japan. Uh, thanks for Waichi for some donation from Taiwan. <laughs> there some lots of uh, uh, mask here. So we sometimes give away uh, some mask for patient who don't have mask because it reduces the risk of infection. It's uh, beneficial for uh, us to be protected. So, and I also use a uh, slit round uh, breath seal. Uh, I don't know it's uh, really useful or not, but uh, we started to use them. And yeah, so, uh, and I use um, the fan from behind to send wind uh, to uh, in imagining that the, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> some particle of the virus will go away. <laughs> so, yeah, that makes me relief. <laughs> Maybe the patient doesn't want your particles, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's right. They don't know. <laughs> Maybe, Maybe, Paul, Maybe Paul can share what he does. Yeah, so I, you know, we're wearing N95 masks or and, and a regular mask on top for every patient encounter. Um, you know, so for the, for the clinics, that's what we're doing. In, in addition to, I, I wear goggles all the time, you know, these, these, these glasses um, and gloves. So for just regular ambulatory outpatient clinic for our injections and so forth, we're, um, you know, we're, we're fully geared. Uh, I think what's interesting though, is that now we're starting to transition into this elective surgery conversation and getting these back up and, you know, what, um, you know, what to do and what kind of PPE to wear. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting, all these comments about first wave, second wave, you know, post-COVID life, you know, how we manage our practices. 
And I think that my, my feeling, and, and Alan, I'm curious as to what you're doing in Philadelphia, is that we're gonna be wearing PPE for quite some time. Um, and our trainees are gonna be used to doing this, you know, in the, in the sort of short term and probably the medium and long term. Um, and how do we actually develop PPE that is maybe to a certain extent more amenable to ophthalmologists um, and what we do, uh, and especially retina specialists. So, you know, I think there, there was another question here, which I think brings up the whole issue of testing as well, right? So point of care testing, pre-op testing two to three days prior to surgery. You know, we've all had these experiences now, I think, where a patient comes into our office, they, they need surgery, they're COVID, you know, potentially symptom-free and, and so forth. But then they show up to the OR two days later and they have ILI symptoms and they, you know, we've had patients who've tested COVID positive. So what's, let's start with, uh, let's start with uh, again, and, or maybe Alan, you can comment what you're doing at, at Wills, but what's your testing protocol? And, you know, I think this is important. How confident are we that even if it's a negative test, are we doing anything different in the OR for PPE? Yeah. Uh, I would say that um, to the to the overarching question about PPE, PPE uh, from a societal standpoint, from a outpatient office clinic standpoint, from an operating room standpoint, is here to, is here to stay uh, for better or for worse. Um, we spoke a little bit about cultural differences uh, on our last Asian podcast of people wearing face masks just generally in public. And maybe it was a little bit more in Asia uh, than in other countries like Europe or North America uh, for reasons of pollution or for reasons of culture and consideration of others. And I think, I think that's clearly here to stay. In the clinic, we do very similar. Uh, and we, uh, I'll just emphasize that for retina specialists, since our patients, tend to be those that are most vulnerable to serious complications from, from SARS-CoV-2 virus, that we need to be very, very vigilant in protecting them in our operating rooms. I cannot imagine a scenario where my clinics, which used to be very, very busy with very, very tightly, tightly uh, packed waiting rooms with patients sitting right next to each other, um, I can't imagine that happening because because of the goal for safety for our patients and our staff. In the operating room, as Paul is, is describing, we're, we're kind of thinking about what kind of issues are going to be in, involved with opening and taking care of patients safely, and also very importantly, making sure our staff stays, stays safe. Um, there's discussion and there's a trend right now to preoperative testing since many of our surgeries are elective. We have emergency surgeries, we've been doing them, but elective surgeries, then the issues of general anesthesia and intubation and aerosolization, maybe staying out of the OR suite for 15 minutes so that air passes can go through and clear any potential particles that are, that are done. Doing <clears throat> local uh, anesthesia on the table, we used to do a peribulbar injection right in front of the patient's face. They had a mask, but right up there, now maybe we will drape them completely before we do the local anesthesia. 
Um, if you have a 3D monitor system to do surgery, like some of you do already have, I know, that may distance you a little bit from the patient's face. We know that there is some aerosolization that occurs during surgery that's around the drapes. We see it when we operate and we have an indirect lens and we see fogging there. So there's definitely some aerosolization and trying to keep those seals for the patient's masks and around the drapes are important. I think the issue of preoperative testing uh, is something that now that we're having testing results that are fairly rapid, maybe two-day testing turnaround results, we can test patients, uh, keeping in mind that, of course, testing is not 100%. Uh, there can be false negatives. That is, the patient is positive, they test negative. So we have to assume that everyone is COVID positive for the safety of the staff and for others. So those are some of the principles that we're thinking about for restarting. Now, Wei Chi, what, what you, what's your take on this? So point of care testing, mm -hmm. protection for everyone involved, you know, staff, patient, and so forth. So uh, can I share my screen? We actually divided our activity into low risk. Yeah. Of course, Wei Chi has slides. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, we have uh, a different scenario that uh, uh, you can see, and uh, so you can you can have different level of protection, so that uh, uh, that you could make sure you are in in good good uh, condition, in safe condition, and uh, uh, we uh, we enforce this uh, uh, very rigorously, and uh, uh, there's only one additional thing I would like to emphasize is the. Um, for the surgical cases, we have very low. Uh, we we would uh, uh, if if there's any positive TOCC history, the travel positive travel or high risk patient like uh, we as medical staff actually a high risk uh, uh, group of people, and uh, uh, contact history or cluster history, then we would uh, waste no time to send the patient to have a chest x-ray exam. So I think that's uh, very important. Also, I think any, any patient who have uh, fever, who have uh, fever up to uh, higher than uh, seven, uh, 37 uh, degree uh, would be sent to uh, our ER first, rather than uh, they could go into the hospital. Outside the uh, ER, we have uh, we have a pre-screening tent, so that uh, uh, you can uh, uh, you can uh, screen these high-risk uh, uh, patients. And in these tents, you have a portable laboratory machine as well as the um, X-ray, so you can perform the uh, procedure. Uh, you can you can you can uh, screen high risk patient over there, so so that uh, you make sure there's no high risk patient go inside the hospital. I think that's very important. Um, yeah. So you you have clear protocols in place for this. Yes. Yes. I, I want to shift gears a little bit um, since 
you know, we, we have some people who are uh, pediatric retina specialists, right? So there've been some couple questions about ROP screening, ROP protocols, um, what's changed in your practice uh, for one screening, right? So are you doing anything different for your screening protocol protocols? And then when you have to treat, right? And this is something that I think about a lot. Um, are we going to be more likely to use anti-VEGF injections because it, it prevents our, our time uh, to be as prolonged uh, doing the lasers? So uh, Shunji and then maybe Manish can comment and we'll go to Weiji. Um, actually, we have been doing uh, in Japan virtually the same way as we used to do uh, in the past. Um, the COVID-19 didn't affect the screen protocol, but um, the difference I experienced is that uh, when I try to enter the NICU, uh, that we need, our, we need to have our body temperature checked. And if the body temperature is below 37, it is okay. We are allowed to enter the NICU. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we wear PPE, uh, but those are small uh, minor changes we have experienced so far. So the battery is the same protocol we employ. We do the same way. Uh, we, we just, uh, we use anti-VEGF first, most of the cases. So as usual. So I, I myself uh, don't do the screenings, but I have colleagues who do it and uh, they've been doing it through this period uh, whenever required with the regular uh, PP, which uh, Shunji also mentioned, we do the regular stuff, which we do with the other patients, make sure that the patient has uh, no temperature and all those other things. And if at all any anesthesia requirement is there, then, then of course uh, the, the whole thing changes in terms of that the anesthetist, everyone, they all wear a full PPE to go in. In fact, tomorrow is a surgical ROP case uh, uh, in our OR, my colleague is operating. So uh, the patient has already been uh, put through a COVID test to make sure that he's negative. Uh, and uh, only then we are taking an anesthesia because it's in general anesthesia. Uh, there'll be a full PP uh, thing which the anesthetist wears. But as far as the surgeon is concerned, once the patient is under anesthesia, uh, the surgeon goes into the OR uh, and then wears the regular mask uh, and, and do the regular surgery. I don't think we do anything different uh, as far as uh, uh, the PP is concerned from the surgeon perspective in these cases. Regular surgical mask or N95 mask? Uh, for the surgery, regular surgical mask because the patient's already uh, in a full drape and uh, everything is covered. So we, we just wear a regular surgical mask for it. But in the outpatient, we wear an N95. We have a lot of debate about regular surgical masks or N95 masks in within my own practice and partners of 20 doctors at Will's Eye. And uh, I personally wear a regular surgical mask because the N95 is uncomfortable and I wind up touching yeah. my face a lot. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to switch us a little bit. I think those pediatric questions are great. And I'm, there have been some comments and questions about delaying uh, injections and impact on patients. And it kind of speaks to, we have our patients at home. We have, we are at our clinics or now even in, in our homes and we don't know uh, what is going on in their eyes. 
Okay. And so a lot, there's a, this whole telemedicine, telehealth. Um, and my, I have two questions for you, for each of you. One is, are you doing any telehealth, telemedicine, very difficult with retina patients in some ways, right? And secondly, if you could have a wish list of devices or technologies to improve the, to improve the efficacy and the, and the value of retinal telehealth, what would they be? Uh, let's start with Dr. Kusaka. Yes, uh, for the uh, second question, uh, I wish I could have a personal octos for the patient so they can send their image of the eye, <laughs> wide field image to us. <laughs> that makes it so easy to uh, diagnose. Yeah. And the, uh, sorry, what, what was the first question? The first question, are you doing any telemedicine or teleretina yeah. With your patients now? In Japan, actually, there was a regulation that we cannot um, do telehealth. But after COVID-19, the government allowed us to do that. But only thing we can do is uh, for the, not for the first patient, but after the visit, uh, we can take a call from the patient and we can prescribe ask them their condition and we can send prescription to the uh, pharmacy nearby. So that we, we have a lot of limitation, but we, the good news is we just moved a little bit ahead. Weichi, what, what's, do you do any telehealth? And if you had to, Dr. Kusaka wants an optos image, 200 degrees. <laughs> um, this, is, this, is not, this is not within, I'm, I'm asking you, for exactly what you want, because these regulations are being minimized. The technology, I mean, we, you know, we could do this and send the patient dilating drops like some people are doing here in the United States now, sending people dilating drops to their home or prescribing them and then having them use a, an adapter. So, Weichi. Actually, uh, we, our resident has been using uh, a, health, a cell phone based uh, imaging devices attached to our, our cell phone. And uh, they could uh, take fairly decent uh, founders photo for the patients. So I, I actually bought those uh, devices from India. <laughs> they have a couple uh, um, company producing them adapter, you can adapt to your cell phone, then you can uh, take good photo. I think uh, it's not difficult to get a good photo from adult patient, but it's very difficult to get a good photo from pediatric patients. And in uh, uh, our hospital, uh, when our residents are doing the consultation from the a patient in, at the ER, we would have a teleconference first they would uh, turn on the, uh, the, 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 the screen for the patient in the ER. Then they could uh, have a brief uh, history taking and uh, have a, a, a take a look at the external eye condition first. Then if the resident decided there's a need to see the patient on site, then he would uh, go to the ER. Otherwise he might just prescribe uh, medicine 
uh, eye drop to for the patient and uh, instruct the patient uh, to come back if there is anything uh, that deteriorate on the following days. And uh, uh, in the uh, in the high mountain area, we actually have a clinic there, and uh, uh, that's uh, that's a, a clinic designed for the uh, taking care of the Aboriginal people. So in that clinic, we also have uh, uh, installment of certain uh, tailor uh, medicine uh, devices. So we can see patient uh, 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 and uh, if the nurse were there, they could show us the, uh, the image from a sleep lamp. So uh, if uh, I have a wish list uh, it would be wonderful if I could have a, a, a portable uh, OCD like Judy Kim uh, mentioned. That that should be quite uh, useful for our practice. Yeah, the Homo CT is coming. The Homo CT is coming. <laughs> it really is. That's uh, it's on my wish list too. And how about Manish? About telehealth and on your what's on your wish list? Yeah, so I, my wish list was already what Whitey's added. The OCT, I was going to add that to the Optus. <laughs> if things are there, I think we can we can definitely uh, move ahead much faster. So for India also, uh, we were not allowed to prescribe or, or give diagnosis to patients on telemedical back earlier. There was regulations on it. But uh, since the COVID, the government ha has allowed us to do that. Only issue with our retinal uh, issue is that we need something uh, to visualize the retina uh, and, and uh, it's only by the word of patient that my vision has fallen down and if it's your old patient you can make some sort of a judgment based on the case files that what he must be having is it a diabetic patient who's been lasered has he had a vitreous hemorrhage or something but but you cannot be sure what's happening with the patient unless you have a visual so there's a huge limitation to uh, telemedical thing. What Waichi said that you have a clinic set up in the periphery and they transmit you pictures. That's a different way altogether. But here we are talking of an individual patient calling you and, and trying to ask you that, oh, I have this problem. And, and, and so for that, I think there's a huge limitation because yeah. even if you have an adapter, uh, I'm not sure if the patient, unless he's been really taught how to take a picture uh, with that adapter and uh, how would he take it and how would he know whether it's a good picture, bad picture. So it, I don't think that's a, that's a solution per se uh, uh, at the moment. That's what I feel. Couldn't we do this though with, with our patients with, with diabetes mellitus? I, I mean, the, the diabetes mellitus is explosive worldwide and, and yet it still is. Uh, I mean, it still is. It seems like, a problem for which technology could be available. It's just not, we're not executing. We're not executing to reduce this pr predictable blindness that will occur in a certain percentage of patients. So anyway, that's, those are my perspectives. If I had a wish list uh, right now, uh, since the, the patients about whom I'm most concerned about coming into the office, if I could keep away the older patients who I inject, uh, for wet age-related macular degeneration, I would take the instrument that, that would tell me that first. And so I would lean towards a home-based anatomical test like home-based OCT, even before a fundus photograph. And 
I'll take the, I'll take a photograph too, not even 200 degrees, but just the macula. Um, and those would be, that's how I would prioritize the technology that's out there and is being accelerated. Just like telehealth is now approved in many countries as it, as we accelerate change in the shadow of COVID-19, I think we'll accelerate tools and technologies to help us with teleretina specifically. What do you think, Paul? No, I, I agree. I think all of us who are dealing with this are all agree that telehealth is, ne is not going to go away in the long term. I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting that it takes a crisis, you know, like this to make us all aware that this is something that we desperately need to do better at. You know, it's interesting, you know, we, we go back to 9-11 to and, um, you know, can you imagine going to the airport anymore without uh, going through TSA and, and having, you know, a full security check? And you remember the days before that where we could just walk into the airport. You know, there's, so there's a whole new industry that's going to be uh, burgeoning and booming, you know, from, from this. And I think that we're going to have better access for care for patients. I mean, I would love, agree. I mean, we, for, as a retina specialist, I would love some sort of multimodal home imaging device you know, that's cost effective that will help us manage our patients and, and debulk this congestion of, you know, we have these patients come back every month. So how can we spread it, spread it out so our, you know, our most vulnerable patients are safer? Um, absolutely agree. I think that this is, this is a part of our field that's going to accelerate and I think the technology is going to catch up. So I think that's probably a good time to wrap up. I think this has been a great discussion um, lots of different comments and, and different issues that we tackled. Uh, Alan, anything else on your end? No, I, I you know, the world is uh, definitely a smaller place in light of uh, everyone sharing in this unfortunate pandemic. Um, I, I would just say that, you know, we're speaking to an Asian audience. There's, there, there are things that we have to be sensitive about and, um, and, and the Asian audience and Asians in, in particular, um, you know, there, there sometimes is blame uh, for, for where things come from. And I think, I think if we, we all stick together and, and, and kind of stay closer instead of building up walls, I think in general we'll, we'll do better as, as a world. You know, I, I find myself saying this a lot these days, which is, you know, we're all in this together. And the only way we'll get through it is by, by sticking together and working through solutions. Absolutely. Agree. Yes. Great. Yeah. So thanks to all of you. Uh, and thanks to all of our participants um, who've asked them wonderful questions. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, herein BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters, 
of this webcast podcast makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.